0: Thanks for leading us in prayer, Alan. And uh, welcome, church family. Grateful to be with you guys this morning. If you have your Bible, you can open to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, that's where we're going to be for our sermon text today. And so as you're turning there, um, let me just start out by asking everybody here a question today. Uh, My question for you is this. um, When was the last time that you were amazed by something that you saw? When was the last time you were stunned by something you saw? You saw something and you were just awestruck. When was the last time that happened? On Thursday night, um, my kids and I were coming home from my in-law's house, and uh, we got home around 10 p.m., and it was uh, just a... And it was just one of those nights where the sky is so clear and you can look up and you see the moon and it's so bright. And I, you know, we, uh, we got out of the car and my, my oldest daughter, Reagan looks up at the sky to, to see the moon. And all of a sudden she kind of yells out, like caught my attention. She said, Whoa, did you, did you guys see that? And I was like, no, what'd you see? And she said, I saw a shooting star. I've never seen one before. And I was like, really? Did you see one? And she went on for a few minutes trying to put into words what it was, you know? And if you've ever seen a shooting star, you know, like, it's, it's kind of fun to try to put it into words. She was, she was saying it was like this flash of light that just kind of streaked across the sky, but it wasn't going super fast, but... It was kind of like one of those fireworks on the 4th of July where it was kind of going across the sky, but there was a white tail behind it and, you know, it just kind of faded out and, and it was amazing. She's like, I I want to see more. And so she, you know, it's like 10 o'clock at night and cold outside. She goes on our front porch and she gets a chair off our front porch and she sits down in the grass in our front yard and she just looks up at the sky (laughs) and she was just waiting to see another one, you know? And uh, I wonder, you know, have you ever had a moment like that? where, you know, maybe it was a shooting star, maybe it was something else, but you saw something and you, it was amazing to you. And uh, you couldn't quite put it in words. You just wish everybody else could see it the same way you did. You know, you ever had one of those moments? You know what I'm talking about? I don't know. It's, there's this feeling that comes over you. And uh, I, you know, I've seen shooting stars in my life. I don't know if you have, but I remember moments where there's just that. I can't believe what I just saw feeling. My wife and I went to Alaska. We saw the Northern Lights one night. It was amazing. Uh, you know, I remember, you know, sometimes when I'm pulling up to uh, the corner of Haynes Road and Dayton Zenia at like 7.30 in the morning and the sunlight is shining so bright in my face at that light that I just have to turn away and I'm like, oh man. Like there's a heaviness about what you're seeing right there and it's just like, wow, is it really that bright? I remember... The way that, you know, my, when I first, my first born child, Reagan, when she was born, you know, just seeing that baby just holding her in your arms, you know, and the, the visual of my wife walking down the aisle when we got married, you know, just, there's these moments where you're like, I wish everybody could just see this the way I see it. This is just, it, it, you know what that's called when it's, it's like, you're trying to put it in words and there's something that's just so amazing. And there's this, there's this weightiness and this sense of, wow, that just comes over. You know what that's called? It's called glory. It's called glory. We use the word glory all the time in our English language, or at least in church culture, we use the word glory. And a lot of times we don't really know what it means, you know, we talk about glorifying God. I think what we really mean by that is worshiping God. Like that's what we mean by it. But glory has this weight, this this weight of awe that comes when, you know, a reality hits you and you become awestruck. When's the last time you saw something glorious? In our text today, John tells us that he saw the glory of Christ. And today as we dig deeper into the Christ who came at Christmas, I hope that our eyes are opened a little bit more and that we catch a glimpse of Christ's glory as well. If you're joining us for the first time today, you need to know that this is a week four of a four of a really a five-part series that we're calling True Light. Uh, In this series, we're looking at John chapter one, verses one through 18. Today, we're going to be focused specifically on verses 14 through 18. But uh, I think it's always helpful to remember where we've been in our study so far. So we're looking at the Gospel of John. We remember that this John who wrote the Gospel of John, he was one of Jesus' closest friends. He knew him better than perhaps anybody else, um, any of the other disciples. Uh, we know that John's purpose for writing this Gospel he says, is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him, you would have life in his name, right? So John wants us to read these things about Jesus, believe and then experience the life that comes through true belief in Christ. We talked about this in verses 1 through 5, that John wants us to see Jesus as the light and the life of the world. Um, Verses 6 through 8, John wants us to show Jesus as witnesses to the world, like John the Baptist. Uh, Verses 9 through 13, we're really all about receiving Jesus into our life and becoming true children of God. And that's where we've been so far today. We're going to look at verses 14 through 18. And today, again, we want to see Jesus for who he really is, the glorious Christ. Christ. We want to see the glory of Christ at Christmas in his incarnation. So let's look at John chapter one, verses 14 through 18. The word of God reads this way. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he comes after me and ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the father's side, he has made him known. This is God's word and the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains. How long? forever, forever. Praise God for his word. Glad we get to open it together today. Uh, In our text today, John makes that statement. He says that we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son of the father. Um, When John says glory, what does glory mean? Again, the word glory in the original Greek language is the word doxa, it has to do with majesty and splendor, right? When you see it, you know something magnificent is there, right? Which, this is really interesting to me because when John says we have seen Christ, we have seen his glory, I think it's interesting because the Bible relates over and over again that really Jesus, as a, as a man, um, when you were just to look at him, you wouldn't have seen anything super impressive, right? He was a baby, grew up as a child as a teenager in the temple and then grew into, you know, being an adult man. In fact, in the gospel accounts, people are talking about Jesus being the son of God. And what did the crowd say about him? It, wait, you're talking about the carpenter's son, right? He's just a regular guy. And at the cross, this man, Jesus, wouldn't become anything impressive to look upon at all. He became grotesque to look upon. Bloody, beaten, torn to shreds at the cross. He was, the words of Isaiah, the prophet were fulfilled. Isaiah 53 verse two, which says that he had no form or majesty that we should look upon him and no beauty that we should desire him. So seeing his glory has to mean something, you know, much more than just looking at him with your eyes and kind of seeing the way he looked. It must mean something more than that. So What's John talking about specifically? What does he mean when he says we have seen his glory? John might mean different things. Um, John uses the word glory throughout his gospel uh, in different ways. In, in John chapter 2, um, Jesus goes and he, turn, he performs the miracle of turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And John says this, this is the first of Jesus's signs that he did at Cana in Galilee and he manifested his glory. In John 11 verse 40, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And then he says to Martha, did I not not tell you that if you believed that you would see the glory of God? So maybe when John is talking about Jesus's glory, maybe he means we've seen his miracles. Maybe John means that uh, when we saw his glory, maybe he's referring to the brightness of Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Because remember in the other gospel accounts of Matthew and Mark and Luke, those gospel accounts tell us that John who wrote this book went with Peter and James to uh, the high side of a mountain and while they were there Jesus was transfigured his robes became you know brilliantly white and he was standing there you know kind of in his heavenly form with Moses and Elijah and so since John has been talking quite a bit in John 1 about seeing the light of Christ is he maybe he's talking about the glory of Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration Maybe John means something more, like we've just seen all of who Jesus is. Right? We, maybe he's talking about the fact that they finally, they, they've seen the glory of Christ as if they finally recognized he was the eternal, exalted son of God who was from the beginning. Because in John 17, Jesus prays and he mentions the glory that he had alongside the father before the earth began, before the world was created. He says, uh, I want my disciples to see my glory and, you know, so all these things, John uses the word glory, maybe in reference to miracles, maybe in reference to, you know, the, the Mount of Transfiguration and the heavenly image of Christ. Maybe it has to do with Christ's exalted position and his character as the son of God in the world. Um, as I was reading this week, I came across this statement from John MacArthur where he said this. John MacArthur says, John, talking about the author of the gospel, John could say it this way, we saw his love, we saw his mercy, we saw his wisdom, we saw his knowledge, we saw his power, we saw his justice, we saw his holiness, we saw his compassion, we saw his omnipotence, we saw his omniscience, we saw his anger, we saw his wrath, we saw his kindness, we saw his patience, we saw it all. We saw it all. I think this is something more about what John means when he talks about seeing the glory of Christ. That, yeah, he saw the miracles. He saw the the transfigured Christ on the mountain. He saw, he came to understand who Jesus was as the exalted son of God. He, He saw the way Jesus lived day in and day out and all the wonder and the real life Jesus for who he was. And he says, we have seen his glory. I think that John is saying that he saw all of who Jesus was. And he wants, he's writing now because he wants his, his readers to believe in Jesus Christ for all that he is. Have you seen Jesus today? Are you, are you seeing him more and more to come to understand all of who he is? I hope that's what you see in Christ this Christmas. That's really the big call from this sermon today. See the glory of Christ this Christmas. Simple call for you and I today. See the glory of Christ this Christmas. Our text shows us three specific things about Jesus that I believe help us see his glory at Christmas. I want us to look at those three things together and I hope that you are truly moved in your heart to worship him. So let's look at these three things together. We see the glory of Christ when we see, first of all, what he became. When we see what he, what he became. Our text tells us in verse 14... That the word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh. And again, if you're new to the scriptures, you need to understand that here in John 1, when he talks about the word, he's talking about the person of Jesus Christ. You know, he's the word that became flesh, who was with God in the beginning and was God in the beginning. The word is Jesus. And when John says that the word became flesh, what does that mean? The, the phrase became flesh in the Greek language is the word ginomai sarx. It to, to ginomai means to become something. It means to have something come to pass or to be done. When, when something becomes something, it means that it wasn't that thing and then it was. It, it hadn't happened and then it happened, right? So, so what's he saying? That the son of God became flesh. He had not been flesh before, but then he became flesh. You know, it it hadn't happened that way before, but then it did. That word flesh means, you know, that he put on the substance that covers your bones and contains the blood, which will become very important because what is the acceptable sacrifice for sin? The blood of the spotless lamb of God. How important is it that Jesus became human? He could shed his blood. It means this Jesus, you know, is putting on flesh. It's the doctrine of the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas and it's very important. We're going to get into it more and more throughout this sermon today, but I do want to just reiterate, Jesus was fully human when he was on this earth. How human was Jesus? Let me just remind you, Jesus experienced family life. Jesus had a family tree. He had lineage. We read about it in the opening chapters of the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. Jesus had brothers named James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, Matthew 13 tells us. Jesus had sisters, Mark 6:3 says. Jesus came from a Jewish background, John 4, 9. Jesus loved his mother and after he died, made sure that his mother was cared for, John 19 says. Jesus experienced not just family life, but Jesus experienced growing up. Right? He was born as a baby in a manger. He went through adolescence. Luke chapter 2 tells us that at age 12, he was in the temple. He grew up in both wisdom and stature, Luke 2.52 says. He ended up having a job. They call him the carpenter in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. He became a man and started a ministry around age 30, Luke 3.23 says. Jesus grew up. He experienced basic needs like we all have. He got tired. Right? He, he, went, he went to sleep in a boat right he got sleepy, Mark four says. Jesus got hungry and he wanted to eat. The devil could tempt him with food, and he cursed a fig tree that didn't produce figs in mark eleven. he 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 got thirsty, and he asked the woman for what uh, the woman at the well for a drink in John four. So Jesus experienced basic life needs. Jesus experienced church life like you and I did right now. oh, uh, he he grew up going to worship at the on the Sabbath in Luke chapter four. Jesus experienced various types of people, sick people, dying people, old people, young people, godly people, wicked people, demonic people, religious people, people from different races and cultures. Like Jesus experienced all types of people. Jesus experienced celebrations. We already mentioned he went to a wedding in John 2. He turned the water into wine. He... Went to parties. He liked to go to feasts and festivals, Luke 2.41 tells us. Jesus experienced human emotional turmoil. Jesus was troubled in his spirit, John 13.21 says. He got angry and overturned the tables in the temple, John 2 says. He got frustrated with his disciples and said to them, are you so dull? Mark chapter 7. He got sad and he wept. When he entered Jerusalem and after Lazarus died in John chapter 11, Jesus became in agony and anguish. And in Luke 22, it says that he sweat drops of blood. Jesus experienced turmoil, Jesus experienced pain and suffering. He was beaten and whipped, and nails driven in his hands, and a spear in his side. And he bled and he cried out from the cross. And he breathed a final breath, and he died. How human was Jesus? Jesus experienced the full gamut of humanity. I think this is important for us to remember today because uh, in our culture right now, you know, the thing we often have to defend, we often today have to defend Jesus' divinity. Not everybody wants to admit that Jesus was God. But in the first century, the debate was, you know, around Jesus' humanity was he really a human being? This was the, the debate that came up uh, in church history with the rise of Gnosticism. And the Gnostics said that Jesus seemed to be human, but he really wasn't. He was more like a ghost or a phantom. Uh, he, they, they had stories about how Jesus would walk on the beach, but when he walked, he wouldn't really leave footprints in the sand, right? Like things like that, that he was more of a ghost, And they said that Jesus wasn't God in the flesh and he couldn't be God in the flesh because flesh, you know, in their view was sinful. And so because he couldn't be sinful, he couldn't have a real body like everybody else. And the scripture goes on to teach that that is actually heretical in nature. It's it's demonic in nature to believe that. So... John emphasizes Jesus' humanity in his gospel, and he emphasizes it even more in his epistles, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And in fact, here's what he says in 2 John 1, verse 7. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Think that's important that we recognize the humanity of Christ? Fully God and fully man, not partially man, like fully man. John understood the importance of seeing that Jesus came in the flesh. And so when we see the glory of Christ, we need to see what he became. He became flesh of mankind like you and I. So when we look at our text in John 1, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt, again in the Greek language, gives us insight onto what John means right here. The word dwelt in the Greek language is the word skinao. And you know what skinao means? It means to set up a tent or a tabernacle. Which I think is really interesting because we have to remember John, the writer of this book, is a Jew. The Jews were very familiar with the history of Israel and the Israelites and they would have known their Old Testament scriptures and the story of, of uh, Israel traveling through the desert and what did they have? This portable tent, right? This portable temple that they would set up when the, wherever they went where, where really that temple became the house of the glory of God. And it was in that tabernacle and in that presence is where God's glory was made manifest for the people to see. So what's John saying here when he says that Christ dwelt among us? He's not just saying that Jesus came to earth. He is saying that. But he's saying Jesus put on flesh and his flesh made him tabernacle among us. Just as the people of the Old Testament saw the glory of God in the tabernacle, those in the New Testament can see God's glory in the person of Christ. John is saying that just as the plain tent of the tabernacle housed the glory of God, so did the plain body of Jesus. Amazing. See the glory of Christ in his incarnation at Christmas. His body was the tabernacle that housed the glory of God, which ties right into our second point. We see the glory of Christ, not just in what... uh, he became, but also in what he revealed. In what he revealed. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Glory as of the only son from the father. Um, I just think there's something small to point out here, but it might be helpful in your understanding of this little phrase in scripture. John uses the word as... And I think some of us can be sometimes confused about this. We often, in our English language today, we use the word as, like, uh, as a simile, right? In the, in the sense of comparing two things. So we would say something like, um, she's quiet as a mouse. Um, we don't mean that she's actually a mouse, right? Like, we mean that, you know, that she, you know, is kind of like a mouse in that way. And so when we read the word as here, Jesus having glory as the only son from the father, you know, we need to understand, John is not saying that Jesus isn't really God's son, but he kind of had glory like he was. John's not using as here as like a simile. Instead, he's, he's saying that Jesus is indeed God's son. In the way that I would say it is like this, when I, when I commit my wedding vows to Rachel and I say, I, Jason, take you, Rachel, as my wife, I'm not saying I take you like a wife. I'm saying, no, you're my, my wife now, right? Like that's who you are. And that's how John uses the word as here. It's it's a definitive statement. John is saying that Jesus had glory as the only son from the father because he was the only son from the father, the only begotten. That's who he was. And that's exactly the point that John goes on to make here in verse 18. If you still have your Bible open, just look down at verse 18. You know, John says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the father's side has made him known. So John is saying, no one has ever seen God, right? Like our people in our fallen human sinful state, we can't look upon the perfections of God and live, right? that's, that's why he had to come in a tabernacle, right? He had to, be, he had to have a veil over, his, over the glory of God. He had to come in a human body. It's why we sing. What's the song we just sang? Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Jesus tabernacled, but he displayed for us the glory of the Father. Our text says here that Jesus is the only God. He's at the Father's side, but he has made him known. Jesus makes the Father known to us, made him known is an interesting Greek phrase. It's the Greg, it's the it's the phrase exegeomai. And it means to to put on display or to to draw out and show. It's where, uh, it's where we get our word exegesis. For those of you who are students of the Bible, you probably have heard this phrase exegesis. It's kind of a seminary level word where we talk about this Bible study method where we study the Bible and then we bring out what's already in scripture you exegete it the opposite of exegeting scripture is when you eisegete scripture where you have your own opinions about what this means and so you just kind of put your own opinions into the scripture and john is saying that jesus is the exegesis of god jesus shows us who god really is he puts on display who God already is, right? And and the, tr- the 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 thing is, is that in our culture right now, so many people don't look to Jesus to understand God, right? They base their understanding of God on their subjective opinions or their subjective experiences and just kind of what they think. But in doing so, really, they are doing this kind of subjective eisegesis of God. But if they just knew Jesus, then they could have this objective exegesis of God. Jesus displays for us who God really is. Why? Because he really is God. That's who he is. It's why Hebrews 1.3 says that, talking about Jesus, it says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. Firstborn of all creation. It's why John would say to Philip, it's why Jesus would say to Philip in John 14 9, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Jesus has made him known. So, We see the glory of Christ when we see what God revealed. And what did God, what what did Jesus reveal? Jesus revealed God, right? What's your view of God today? Really, this is the question. What's your understanding of God? Many of us come in with different views and understandings of God. Some of us view God as a rule maker. And he's basically just a judge that just busts people's chops if they don't follow the rules, some of us view God as more of a genie in the bottle. You know, you don't really need him in your life until you're in trouble and then you just kind of call on him and you expect him to grant your every wish. Some people view God as a loving, kind of tender, you know, uh, father and he just kind of exists to, to make your life better and give you what you want. You know, the next passage helps us bring clarity to the right view of God. What, what we see from Jesus shows us who God really is. So let's see here a little bit more about, G, about Jesus and what he reveals about God, right? We've talked about what Jesus became, flesh. We've talked about what he revealed, he revealed God. But now let's also see what he brought, what he brought. Verse 14 says, we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. So John is saying Jesus reveals God to us, and God is full of grace and truth. Well, what does that mean? Keep reading down in verse 16 and 17. Verse 16 says, For from, from his fullness, right? Remember, God is full of grace and truth, according to verse 14. Now, verse 16, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Well, that's a nice Christian-y phrase, and we kind of like to say it sometimes. Oh, it's just grace upon grace. What does that mean? When the scripture says that from Christ, we receive grace upon grace from God, what does that mean? Here's what the scripture means when it says this. In verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here's what John is saying. John is saying, remember, he's, John is a Jew. Mainly, the first century readers who are getting this letter are Jewish people at this point. You know, not not exclusively Jews, but a lot of them are Jews. And so he's saying, you know, through Moses, you got the law. And you have to remember the Jews loved the law, they appreciated the law. They saw the law as a gift from God, it was precious to them because it helped them know God's will. Part of It's what made them a unique people from the rest of the peoples in the world, distinct from other nations. The law helped them know what God wanted, so they saw it as a gracious gift. The problem is they couldn't live it out. They couldn't practice it, right? They kept breaking the law of God, and so what did they have to do? It, the law pointed out their sin. Their sins needed to be paid for, so what did they do? They kept having to do sacrifices over and over and over again for the forgiveness of sin, But the point here is that through the law, through the law of Moses, people only got the truth about their sinfulness. But in Jesus, they didn't just get the law and its truth. In Jesus, they receive grace and truth. The fullness of grace and truth. In Jesus, they get grace upon grace. Let me say it this way. God gave man the law they needed through Moses, but God gave man the grace they needed through Jesus. The law was given to reveal our sin. Grace is given to forgive our sin. The law of Moses demanded righteousness from men, The grace of Jesus applies righteousness to men. Through Jesus came grace upon grace. Let's not act like the law is, is only bad. There are good things about the law. It was a gracious gift to the world when God gave the law. But Jesus came and fulfilled it. And then he provided the grace that we needed to be forgiven of the sin that the law revealed. Our text says that in Jesus, they got the fullness of grace and truth. You know what that means? That in Jesus, you get as much grace and truth as possible. Jesus was filled to the max with grace. Jesus was filled to the max with truth. And so in Jesus, we get all the grace, all the truth that is possible to get. We, we get grace and truth. He's filled to the max with both. Jesus is not lacking in grace and truth. He's he's not lacking in either of those. Let me just share with you a few things. He had so much grace that he could go to Peter and say, Peter, I still want you to feed my sheep. And he had so much truth that he could look at the Pharisees and say, you are whitewashed tombs. He had so much grace that he chose to do life with Judas And he had so much truth that he could drive the money changers out of the temple. He had so much grace that he could hang on the cross and say, Father, forgive them. And he had so much truth that he could also say, they just don't know what they're doing. He had so much grace that he could look at the woman caught in adultery and say, woman, I don't condemn you. But he had so much truth that he could say, go and sin no more. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He was filled to the max with both. He wasn't lacking and he's never going to run out. And I want you to hear this from me today. He is full of grace for you as well. He's He's not running short on grace for you this morning. He's not running on empty He's never going to run out. His grace is, is it's like grace upon grace. It, the way the original language is, it's just kind of like the, the waves of grace keep rolling in. It's like if you look out at the ocean and you see a wave come in and then it kind of, kind of fades back out. And then another wave comes in and then it fades out and then another wave comes in. That's the way it is with God's grace. Like, and sinners like you and I, like we need waves of grace like that, don't we? Man, we sin and it's just one wave of grace comes. I got that covered by the blood of Jesus. Okay, I got that next sin covered by the blood of Jesus. I got that next failure covered by the blood of Jesus. You know, waves of grace for you and me. When we see the glory of Christ, we see what he he brought. He brought grace to accompany his truth. So the big question is this, and here's where we're gonna bring it to a close. Have you come to see the glory of Christ? Really think about this this morning. Have you come to see the glory of Christ? Specifically, have you seen it in the Christ who came at Christmas? You know, do you stand in awe of him? Do you stand in awe of him this morning? Um, Wednesday night, Rachel and I went to the Schuster Center to see Handel's Messiah. And uh, if you've ever seen it, you know it's such an incredible performance, right? It literally takes you through the message of the gospel, right? When these, when these singers, these choir singers and these uh, vocalists, when they sing, I, I didn't realize this till I went, they actually sing in English the whole time, their opera voices. I couldn't really tell what they were singing sometimes. But, but you know, you start to realize, you know what they're doing the whole time? They're singing verses of scripture the whole time. And they're singing about creation and the fall and God's glory and the prophecies about Christ and Christ's coming and his death and his resurrection. And of course, there comes the, the kind of the climax of the whole performance where we come to the hallelujah chorus. And what happens when they come to that particular song? Everybody in the crowd does what? Everybody stands. It's customary, right? It's a tradition. I was in the room and everybody in the room just stood to their feet. The story behind that is that in 1740s or so, King George II heard this song for the first time, right? He's the most powerful person in the, you know, in the empire at this time. And he hears this song about Christ and he stands in honor of Christ. And so what does the rest of the crowd do? They stand as well. And so from that time on, it's been this tradition for people just to stand in honor of Christ. And so here we were in the Schuster Center, all these people standing. And I couldn't help but wondering this in my heart are all these people standing out of tradition? How many of them are standing truly in awe of who Christ is? And then it hit me actually, and it brought tears to my eyes right there in the thing. Like how many people are gonna come into our church and to churches all around the globe this Christmas and they're gonna stand and they're gonna sing and they're gonna go through the traditions, but they're gonna totally miss the awe of who Christ is. Have you come to see the glory of Christ? I know we're going into the Christmas season and everybody's kind of focused on God and Jesus and all that. But here's the thing. Don't just go along with tradition. Get to know the Christ of the tradition. Get to know the God of the tradition. See the glory of Christ at Christmas. At Christmas, we see the glory of Christ when we see what he became, flesh, we see the glory of Christ at Christmas when we see what he revealed. He revealed God. We see the glory of Christ at Christmas when we, when we see what he brought. And he brought, he brought grace. So I got to ask you today, everybody in this room, you have to really think on these questions here. Have you seen Christ for who he is? Have you seen him as God The Christ who came at Christmas was God, God in flesh, not just a good human example, not just a profound teacher, not just a rabbi, not just another Bible character among lots of other impressive Bible characters. He was God. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, said this. He said, as a man, he was hungry, yet as God, he fed 15,000 with loaves. As a man, he was thirsty, but as God, he turned water into wine. As a man, he was carried in a ship on a storm, but as God, he walked on the water. As a man, he died. As God, he raised the dead. As a man, he was set before Pilate. As God, he now sits with the Father on the throne. As a man, he was killed by the Jews, but as God, he is worshiped by the angels. Oh, the sufficiency of the person of the Lord Jesus. Oh, his greatness and oh, the responsibility that men have before him. May God help us to respond as Thomas did saying, my Lord and my God. Jesus is Lord and God. If you don't know Jesus, then you don't know God. But if you do know Jesus, then you know God. Do you know him? He's the God who took on humanity. He took on flesh. He's troubled. Some of you are troubled going into this Christmas season. He's troubled. He's tempted in every way as we are. Some of you are battling serious sin and temptation. He had family hardships. He had friends betray him. Some of you are dealing with that this year. Some of you have lost loved ones. Jesus lost loved ones. He was a man. But he also became a man so that he could shed blood and die. We've all sinned against the perfectly righteous and holy God, and we all need our sins forgiven. And the only acceptable sacrifice is the blood of the spotless lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Who takes away the sins of the world. He gave his human blood as the atoning payment for your sin. He couldn't have done that if he didn't become human. He was born to die. Why would he give his life for you? Because he's full of grace. He's full of grace. I've said this before and I'll say it again. We in this room, we are all great sinners, but praise God he's a great savior. Amen. There's more grace in God than there is sin in you and I. He's never going to run out. Christmas shows us that he came to sinners so that sinners could come to God. So see the glory of Christ this Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, we get so busy. I, get, I feel like I get so busy coming into the Christmas season. and I Unless I pause and open your word and take the time to think on it and pray through it and Study, Lord, I, I feel like I can just zip through Christmas with, without really taking the time to wonder at who you are. God, we remember today, you are, you dwell in inapproachable light. And yet, you sent Jesus to tabernacle with us, to veil himself in the flesh. Jesus, thank you that you are Emmanuel, God with us. And we thank you that you came. And we thank you that you revealed the truth about God to us. And we thank you that you gave your blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And we thank you that you have grace upon grace. And so, Lord, this morning, for anyone here today who is really struggling with sin or troubles, I pray today they would, if they're haunted by sin and coming in this room with guilt laying heavy on them. I pray today that they would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his blood shed on the cross for the cleansing of their sin. And I pray that you would let them receive the forgiveness of sin that comes through belief in Christ. I pray for those who go into the Christmas season this year troubled and that they would be comforted by the fact that you are God in flesh. You know what it means to be troubled, to live a human life with struggles like we do. And I pray that that would comfort someone today. I pray, Lord, that you would let us be a church that when we go through the traditions of Christmas, Lord, that we wouldn't just stand, so to speak, in tradition, but we would stand in awe of you and worship you with wonder in our hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.